0: K A L W. When there are times that you do expect a civil disobedience or civil disturbance, you want to make sure that you're partnering with local law enforcement, but also with the university community. She led the U.S. Capitol Police. Now she's UC
1: Berkeley's new police chief.
0: For me, there's a bit of a learning curve between policing in Washington, D.C. versus on a university campus.
1: We'll meet Chief Yogananda Pittman. Then we stay on the Berkeley campus to visit their historic home of student activism.
2: For a while, they were telling us that we weren't allowed to be here and that we didn't have the right to free assembly. And it's kind of funny how the tables turned that way.
1: And we'll meet the man behind this signature Berkeley sound. We're taking a campus tour. I'm Penat Baba, and this is Cross Currents. For today's show, we're headed to UC Berkeley. First, we'll meet the new sheriff in town, actually the new chief of the UC Berkeley police, Yogananda Pittman. Chief Pittman's career has been marked by significant moments in recent history. She joined the Capitol Police Force in Washington, D.C. a few days after 9-11. In 2016, she led security for the Obama inauguration event as the first Black woman police captain. And more recently, just a few hours after the January 6th Capitol attack, she was promoted as interim chief of the U.S. Capitol Police. But in February of this year, Chief Pittman made the cross-country move to start a new position as the UC Berkeley police chief. I spoke to Chief Pittman about her thoughts on policing at a university campus and as a Black woman.
0: For me, there's a bit of a learning curve between policing in Washington DC versus on a university campus, but as a mom, I understand the feeling of dropping a son off to school and what pulling off in that car feels like, but you want to know that they're going to be safe. Mm -hmm. I went to Morgan State University in Baltimore, an HBCU, and I remember the relationship that I had with the police department there. We did not look at campus police the same as police in the city. Mm. They were like father figures or big brothers. They definitely were a welcome presence and we felt safe uh, under their watch.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm. Now you you said you've, you, you're you coming from Washington, D.C. Yeah. and I think f- famously you are coming from the Capitol Police. Yeah it feels like worlds away. Does it feel like that to you? And, and what do you take from that experience and bring to UC Berkeley?
0: I can understand how one could maybe have a perception that it's worlds away. Mm-hmm. However, there are some things that are just uh, unique to law enforcement. Most recently, I've gone to Germany and Canada to teach about some of my lived experiences with law enforcement. And what I find is that there are some central themes to A, the challenges that we face or B, the responsibility that we have that are literally worldwide. Mm -hmm. Is campus policing different? Absolutely. But uh, I will use the learned and lived experiences that I had in Washington and bring them to the campus here while at the same time understanding the faculty's needs, the the students' needs, and mm. uh, adjusting.
1: Mm-hmm. And one thing I think UC Berkeley is historically famous for is having a voice. Yes. And protests. Yes. Long history for being a center for student protests. And there have been cases of violent interactions between students and campus police for example the occupy movement in 2014 uh, where 39 people were arrested and you know berkeley is not it's it's not a quiet campus mm-hmm. so i'm wondering kind of how you see that and and what your approach would be when dealing with protests or civil disobedience on campus which if we know berkeley it ain't stopping
0: Well, fortunately for me, the environment that I came from, we have a tremendous respect for First Amendment activity. The congressional community, there are hundreds and hundreds of uh, demonstrations that Mm -hmm. take place on a daily basis. As a police chief, you certainly don't want to be in any violent interactions. However, when there are times that you do expect a civil disobedience or civil disturbance, you want to make sure that you're partnering with local law enforcement, but also with the university community. Mm. We want to be considerate of their thoughts, feelings, so that we can come up with the best safety plan for the entire campus, hoarding those that may have opposing views providing a safe space for them to do that.
1: Right. Now, we're, we're definitely living in a time when there are many conversations about policing and the role of police and the ongoing debate around leaning into protection from crime and a greater commitment to social services. I'm wondering where, where you kind of fall in this conversation around what the role of policing should be?
0: I welcome the conversations in some regards. I think they're long overdue, particularly when it comes to law enforcement's engagement with underserved communities, with persons of color. Mm. February 7th, I've heard the president talking about persons of color having to have the talk with their sons or daughters. I've had that talk with my sons.
1: You, the police chief, have had that talk with your sons.
0: Yes, because at at times I have been fearful. I know that being an African-American male, they are 21% more likely to have a negative interaction with police and not necessarily because they've done something wrong. With that said, I do not believe that it's an either or situation. You have to remove police altogether or scale down policing in lieu of social services. I believe it has to be a holistic approach. And that starts with having the transparent conversations that address those communities who want to build trust or feel like they have a lot of mistrust. But having served as a law enforcement officer for over 23 years, I have the privilege and the honor of seeing what good things the men and women in law enforcement do day in and day out. So I think as communities come together and collaboratively come up with solutions that address social injustice that also address mental health concerns, address the unhoused concerns. I don't think that we can continue to say that the police are the end all be all. Mm. These have to be shared responsibilities, which will take shared resources to address these community challenges.
1: What have you heard from the stakeholders? I like you calling them the stakeholders. What, what kind of things have you heard that, that keep you optimistic?
0: I've heard from them in terms of campus safety. Parents want to know that when they drop their children off, that they're going to come back home in the same manner in which they left them here. They want to know that they can receive a world-class education in a safe environment. They want to know they're safe in the dorms. We've recently seen mass shootings around the country, and even on campuses, we had an officer killed, unfortunately, at Temple University. We saw the shooting at Michigan State, and all of these things concern students, parents, and faculty, so we want to make sure that we're listening to them and implementing the best practices on this campus so that our stakeholders can feel safe in this environment.
1: That was the new UC Berkeley Police Chief, Yogananda Pittman, and that interview was produced by Astrid Fettel. You're listening to Cross Currents from KALW News. I'm Hannah Baba. As we just heard, UC Berkeley students have a rich history of demonstration and protest. Is it a time
3: when the operation
2: of the machine becomes so obvious? That you can't take part, and you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it
1: stop. That was Mario Savio speaking during the single largest demonstration organized by the 1960s free speech movement. It was held on campus at the university's Sproul Plaza, a place that some people call the heartbeat of Berkeley. Reporter Lizak Shalit went there in 2016 to find out how the plaza remains a center for student activism.
4: Well, I'm part of a group called Fossil Free Cow that uh, we're trying to get the UC regions to divest from fossil fuels. We're
5: here every day from one to three.
4: We're here because we're promoting an event. It's called Nusantara. It's an Indonesian cultural event.
5: We're on the campaign team for Annie Tran and she's running for Senate. And it's for ASUC, which is Associated Students of the University of California. In the
3: fuzzy, golden bear,
2: go Bears!
3: This is the heartbeat of the Berkeley campus.
4: This is Sprawl Plaza, and that description comes from Nadecent Permal, who came to the University of California as a freshman in the 1960s and never left. We're standing in front of Sather Gate at the north end of the plaza listening to a student choir and photobombing a father's picture of his son in cap and gown under the arch.
3: Where this gentleman is standing just behind him, if we could go back to 1968, I would be standing there selling daffodils.
4: Since then, Paramal has spent 49 uninterrupted years on campus, getting a doctorate, teaching in the poli-sci department, working as an administrator, and serving as president of the Cal Alumni Association. What he most values about this plaza is how it invites students to engage with each other,
3: and the world. During the semester, this plaza during the noon hour is lined with tables in which students try to lure students to join student groups, present political information, a whole variety of different activities.
4: But it wasn't always this way. We walk to the opposite end of Sproul, where the plaza intersects with Berkeley's Telegraph Avenue.
3: This border that you see right here as we come to the sidewalk that belongs to both the university and the city, used to be the line of demarcation. Political candidates had to stand on this side on a box or a platform and address students who were on the other side because no political speech was allowed on the campus.
4: But that all changed in 1964. A former student got arrested for distributing flyers on the campus side. The rallies that followed brought thousands of students into the plaza and launched Berkeley's fabled free speech movement.
2: There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stuff.
4: That's the voice of student leader Mario Savio, Within months of this speech, university officials were forced to relax the campus ban on political activity. This ushered in an era of anti-Vietnam War protests, mostly peaceful, but not always. In 1969, then-Governor Ronald Reagan ordered the National Guard to spray demonstrators here. It was the first documented use of tear gas by the U.S. military against its own citizens. Since then, Every generation of Cal students has taken the issues of the day to sprawl. Single-file line! Straighten up that line, have IDs out. Back at Sather Gate, Students for Justice in Palestine are using the arch leading to the plaza for some political theater.
2: For those who weren't here earlier, we're showing a demonstration of what it's like to go through an Israeli checkpoint, one much like those that dot the West Bank. We're going to show you what it's like. Single-file line! Have your
5: ID out! Single file, single file. Stop! Stop!
4: Demonstrators from Tikva, a student Zionist group, are holding a counter demonstration with tarps stained by mock blood. Here's Tikva president Michaela Freed.
2: For a while they were telling us that we weren't allowed to be here and that uh, that we didn't have the right to free assembly and to demonstrate and to speak from our perspective. And
4: it's kind of funny how the tables turned that way. An uptick in anti-Semitic incidents on campus have tested tolerance for political expression here. Last March, the UC Regents responded with a statement of principles against intolerance that defends free speech while condemning derogatory speech.
2: Savio gave his famous uh, speech on those steps. This is a symbol of that.
4: Fried is pointing to the steps in front of Sproul Hall. At the bottom is a granite disk set flush into the pavement. In the center is a six-inch hole that marks an invisible column of air.
3: It says, this soil and the airspace extending above it shall not be a part of any nation and
4: shall not be subject to any
3: entity's jurisdiction.
4: That column of air is meant to question the very existence of borders and celebrate the idea of unrestricted space the plaza as a public space was foremost in the mind of architect Vernon de Mars when it was built in 1961. His
3: concept was to design two plazas, piazzas, that would be reminiscent of the Piazza San Marco in Venice, which would capture that huge public space. And after all, we have our own version of the Campanile on the campus.
4: Unlike the Venice version, The Berkeley Campanile houses a 61-bell carillon that chimes out the hour. The original design was quite grandiose, with flagpoles topped by busts of campus personalities and a glockenspiel. It would have
3: had, on the hour, a door that opened up, and out would have come a golden bear chasing a Stanford Indian with an axe.
4: That would never pass muster today that a life-sized golden bear on a giant pillar does stand guard over Zellerbach Hall. It gives the place a rather fantastical air.
3: Berkeley is thriving. It's alive. It's raucous. It's, I always compare it to that scene in The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy steps out of the black and white and opens the door to the color of Oz.
4: That's Sproul Plaza, where there's always something vibrant going on. Yeah! In Berkeley, I'm Lezak-Schallett for CrossCurrents.
1: That story first aired in 2016. You can find more of Lizak's stories online at kalw.org. This is CrossCurrents. I'm Hannah Baba. At the end of our last story, we heard the bells of UC Berkeley's Campanile Tower. Completed in 1914, the clock tower is actually named Sather Tower, but referred to as the Campanile. It's one of the Bay Area's iconic structures, a building made to be looked at and listened to. Berkeley native and Cal Music Department alumnus Jeremy Dalmas grew up listening to the instrument and scaled the tower a few years back to bring us this story.
2: My name is Jeff Davis. I'm the University Carolinist at the University of California. I mean, uh, don't confuse a bell tower with a carillon. That'd be like confusing a living room with a sofa. (laughs) Okay, Okay. So. so the carillon is the instrument that's at the top of the tower. A lot of people graduate here after four years and thought it was automatic the whole time. When you play the carillon, you're actually moving a metal clapper. A clapper is the metal piece inside of a bell that has a ball on it so that can weigh up to hundreds of pounds. For a professional performer, it can be quite a light feeling. It can feel quite easy to play. For a beginner, it can be quite heavy and difficult to move the clapper over. I always tell my students this is the only instrument that you'll ever play in the whole world, or, where you, or what you practice on is not what you play. <laughs> so the, the practice Uh, instruments don't play bells, they play tone bars like you'd find on a vibraphone perhaps. So, what do you want to hear a little here on?
5: Yeah, that'd be great.
2: So, I'll I'll be playing this at noon so you get to hear it on the carillon as well. So you can hear how these are different things. So every minute here you'll hear the clock mechanism. So all I ask of you is that you be quiet and stay still.
1: That story first aired in 2014. Find more of Jeremy's stories online at klw.org. You're listening to CrossCurrents. From KALW News, I'm Hannah Baba. Up next, a Berkeley writer stays connected with her friend through poetry. It's an episode from KALW's literary podcast, New Arrivals, a pocket-sized book tour with Bay Area authors. Heather Bourbeau lives in Berkeley. Her co-author, Anne Casey, is from Ireland but lives in Sydney, Australia. Their book of
5: poems is called Some Days the Bird. I asked Anne to join me in a poetry conversation over the course of 2021. The crows are screaming, two tricksters taunt. I spend my days peeling my protections. Masked and hatted, I am no one and everyone. Our Prime Minister says the vaccine is not a silver bullet. Primordial monstera fronds list in the blistering shade. And so, crow dives, hits my head. I look up, lower my mask as if to say, I am not the one who wronged you. But he knows what I do not want to admit. Every day, I am complicit. And later, here, the kookaburra will return with his one true love and their burgeoning brood to fill the swaying evening branches with their raucous laughter. Like a young child I point and say, green, as if that were enough, as if it were not magic, this alchemy of turning one gas into another, my breath into theirs.
1: That was Heather Bourbeau and Anne Casey reading from their book, Some Days, The Bird. It came out in December. New Arrivals is produced by Lisa Morehouse. Before we go, let's listen to some music from a Berkeley artist. This is Bobby McFerrin, he'll be performing at the Freight and Salvage tonight. team includes Mary Catherine O'Connor, Wendy Reyes, Kyrie Nashim, James Rollins, Ghanady Joe Johnson, Victor Tense, Shirin Adil, Marissa Ortega Welch, Sunni Khalid, and Ben Trefney. Our opening theme music is by the John Santos Quintet as interpreted by Daud Anthony. For CrossCurrents, I'm Hannah Baba.